Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to begin, and we're going to start in verse number 9. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have all the words on the screen behind me, uh, and we would love for you to be able to engage in God's Word this morning. So Mark chapter 1, verse 9. Let's stand as we get some aerobics in, get the blood circulating as we read God's Word and honor His Word. The Holy Spirit says today through John Mark, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. You may be seated. How many of you have ever, has any of you ever met somebody who claimed to be God? <laughs> a few, uh, few years ago, I was in Ghent, Belgium, and I was sharing the gospel on the street there. And I ran into a guy, and he says, you don't really need to share uh, Jesus with me. I am God. And uh, he turned out he wasn't, just in case you're wondering, he, he, he wasn't. You know, anybody can claim to be God. Uh, there was a, a, something I read a few days ago that said that uh, 25 people in the United States have legally changed their name to God. You know, it's one thing to claim to be God. It's another thing to actually be God. There's a guy in Brooklyn uh, who actually sued Equifax, which is a credit agency, over their failure to recognize his name as being legitimate. His legal first name on his driver's license and all, every kind of documentation was God. Now, he is from Russia. His family's from Russia. They immigrated from Russia to America, and his dad's name was God, and his granddad's name was God. So he is God. Uh, he's God's son, and he's the son of God, and God's grandson, and I guess he's God three, right? <laughs> well, listen, I, anyone can claim to be God, but if you have to sue a credit agency, then maybe you should question your deity. Maybe you're not actually God. Well, listen, the aim of Mark's gospel is to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. And we hear that, and it seems somewhat confusing. How can Jesus be both God and God's Son? How does that work? And I think that for us to kind of understand what we're, we're learning with this term is, is we have to put ourselves in the shoes of those who heard this for the first time, those to whom Mark was writing to. When you read Scripture, always try to find out the context, the audience, who was Mark or who was Paul or who was Peter writing to and, and what was going on. And so for us to understand this phrase, Son of God, we have to put ourselves in that first century Jewish or Gentile mindset. And so there are at least 
three layers of meaning uh, when, when Mark uses this word son of God. First layer of meaning to those who heard it was political. Mark is writing around 65 AD. Uh, and uh, when he is writing, there's a guy named Nero, who is the Caesar, who is the emperor of the Roman Empire. And if you've not really read much on Nero, Nero, as the great theologian Barney Fife uh, would say, was a nut. Uh, he was a sadistic narcissist. Uh, he would hunt down Christians. He would dress Christians in skins of animals, put them in the arena and feed them to the lions. Uh, he would dip Christians in hot wax, set them, hang them in his gardens and set them on fire. And he would ride in his chariot naked saying, the light of the world. Uh, he would uh, make people uh, burn incense to him in the temple saying that he is Divi Philos. He is the son of God. He believed he was God and he wanted others to believe that he was God. And he used propaganda to make everyone call him God. And so when Mark is writing that Jesus Christ is the son of God, this was very subversive, very dangerous language. It could get you in prison or could get you killed. And so there was a political layer. But to those Jewish readers, there was a national level and layer to this. Uh, all throughout the Old Testament, uh, Israel is referred to as God's son. Uh, we see this first in Exodus chapter four, verse 32. And as you look at the nation of Israel, God cared and protected and nurtured Israel uh, like a father would a son. And even though Israel rebelled against God, God still pursued them. And so God is sending Jesus to show the world what a true son of God looks like. Jesus came to do for Israel what Israel could not do. And so Jesus is the true and better son of God. But there is not only a political and national layer, but there is a personal layer. And that is to be the son of someone in the first century or to be a son of something uh, meant that you were equal or that you were of the same nature of that person, or it was a way of describing one's character or one's identity. And so there's a guy in the New Testament named Barnabas, son of encouragement. He was, he was had a character of encouragement. Uh, there is a guy, there's two brothers, James and John. Jesus called them the sons of thunder because of their personalities. And so it was a way to describe who that person was. And so when Mark calls Jesus the son of God. He's not saying that he's less than God. He's saying that he is God. He's the same stuff as God. And he is God in the flesh to show us what God is really like. And so as Mark walks through uh, the life of Jesus, as he begins, he skips ahead past the birth narrative and he focuses on the ministry of Jesus. And the reason why is because he wants to teach us that Jesus is God's son and here's how we know it. Examine his life and you will see that Jesus is the son of God. And so the first two stories that Mark comes with out of the bat are those first two stories that maybe are a little underrated but yet are probably some of the most important stories that really set the stage to prove to us who Jesus is. And so what we're gonna learn this morning is this, is that Jesus' baptism and temptation tell us that he is the beloved son who identified with us and he's the suffering servant who succeeded for us. He's the beloved son who identified with us and he's the suffering servant who succeeded for us. So let's unpack that. Number one, the beloved son who identified with us. Verse nine, in those days, scholars say this is probably around 27 AD. Jesus came from Nazareth. Now, the last place that anyone would have ever thought that the Messiah would come from would be the village of Nazareth. Now, today, it's a large city. Then it was an unimpressive village of around 200 people. And then Jesus himself comes from an unknown family. But not only is it in Nazareth, but it's Nazareth of Galilee. 
Uh, and Galilee was, in the mindset of the people of Israel, was an unimpressive place. And so there was kind of somewhat of a rivalry between Judea, which is the south, and Galilee, which was the north. And so the south is where the elites were, and the Galilee is where the hillbillies and the hicks were. And so it was kind of like the SEC versus the Big Ten, right? It's just kind of rival. We all know that SEC is the best, right? Amen, 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 amen. And so people were like, how could the Christ come from Galilee? Even Nathaniel, one of Jesus' disciples, said, could anything good come from Nazareth? And so Jesus was coming from an unheard of place in an unimpressive town. And so uh, he is, Mark is pointing us where Jesus came from. So he came from this location. And then he's going to be baptized by John in the River Jordan. And so Jesus is going to walk around 85 miles uh, from the city of Nazareth, if that's where he was, to this place on the Jordan River. And he's going to go to his cousin, John. Now, Jesus is around 30 years old, Luke chapter 3, verse 23. And uh, to the best of our knowledge, he has really no following at the time. Nobody's really coming with him. So Jesus, as we go into the gospel of Mark, is going to have caravans of people with him. Well, here he has nobody with him. He shows up at the baptismal site. And this baptism really marks the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry. It's a very, 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 very important event. And how we know that is it's recorded in all four of the gospels. But yet, what seems to maybe be overlooked or seems to be something out of the way was a very big deal. And as it took place, it was a very shocking moment. So here John is, he's out preaching. He's telling everybody, listen, repent, repent, repent. Leave behind your sins. Leave behind your dead religion. Turn to God. And he's saying, listen, there are some of you, you, you are religious and you think that you're right with God, but just because you're religious, just because your parents were Christians or just because your parents were believers don't mean that you are. And so there's this long line of people. They're all ready to get baptized. And as this line is forming, hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people, Jesus walks into the line. It's a very slow moving line. And so I can just imagine my mind, here they are at the riverside. John is out there and John is saying, next, who's the next one? And so one of his disciples is saying, okay, Peter from Bethesda and then Bart from Judea and then Mary from Migdal and Martha from the desert and, and name after name. And, and John is saying, well, next, next wicked sinner who repented, next wicked sinner who repented. And then the guy says, here comes Jesus of Nazareth. And John's like, you're in the wrong line. <laughs> You're not a wicked sinner. What are you doing here? As a matter of fact, Matthew tells us in chapter three, verse 14, that John was trying to prevent Jesus from getting baptized. He's like, you don't need to get baptized. What are you doing here? John prevented people before. Uh, he prevented the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they really weren't truly repentant. But here, Jesus didn't need to repent. He didn't need to be baptized in the eyes of John. John understood who Jesus was. And so here we are, this moment, this awkward moment. Jesus is standing in your line. He's the next one in. John here is trying to figure it out. And so he says, you shouldn't be baptized. But Jesus says, yes, I should. And maybe you're wondering, like, why is it that Jesus got baptized? Like, that seems kind of weird. Well, Jesus gives us the answer in Matthew chapter three, verse 15. And here's what he says. He says, let it be so for thus it is fitting to for us to fulfill all righteousness. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so there's kind of two layers there. The first is he says it's fitting for us. And so for Jesus here, 
Uh, he is getting baptized to fulfill the plan of God based on the word of God that came from the prophets of God that said that there would be a messenger who would come and prepare the way. And so Jesus, in his baptism, was endorsing John's ministry that John was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, that he was the new Elijah. So that's one way in which Jesus was fulfilling all righteousness for us to fulfill all righteousness was that endorsing John's ministry. But then in another way, Jesus fulfills all righteousness by perfectly obeying the righteous demands of God for humanity. So he's going to perfectly obey. How does he do that? Does it in three ways. Number one, we see that through his humiliation. So Jesus humbles himself and submits himself to the will of God by being baptized by John. Now think about this. Seems kind of beneath Jesus. I mean, Jesus is God. Jesus is the son of God. And he could have been baptized by anybody. He could have been baptized by Nicodemus. He could have been baptized by Caiaphas, the high priest. He could have been baptized by anybody in any spectacular place in Jerusalem. But yet he chooses a wild-haired, wild-eyed, weird-eating hippie in the wilderness to baptize him in muddy water. Seems strange. But yet he does it. He doesn't go to the religious elite. He goes to a man in obscurity. Now, if anyone had a reason not to be baptized, it would be Jesus. And, and yet, as pastor, there are often many times I hear people give me all kinds of reasons why they shouldn't get baptized. They give excuses. I mean, I know that for some people, taking that baptism, that taking that next step of publicly uh, going under the water and coming out, uh, that can be a humbling experience. Uh, it, it is, it's very kind of daunting and scary to publicly tell everyone that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of your life. And people are afraid of public speaking. They're afraid of getting up in front of people. I've had some people come to me and say, Pastor, uh, I, I, I just can't get baptized. I say, why? Because I don't want people to know that I'm a sinner. I look at them and say, but we all know you're a sinner. <laughs> it's not going to shock anybody. Like, wow, I can't believe. Oh, John. Yeah, John's a sinner. Anyway, so here's what I want you to get. If Jesus can humble himself by being baptized by John, who was a sinner, then maybe we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously. Maybe. So he fulfills all righteousness through his humiliation, but secondly, he fulfills all righteousness through his substitution. So Jesus comes and he gets in the line. And if you were to look out in the crowd that day and didn't know who Jesus was, you would just think that Jesus is another sinner who is repented, who's now gonna be baptized. Jesus came and he identified himself with the sinners that he was in line with. Jesus came to this earth to identify with sinful humanity, even though he didn't sin, and he did so that he could be our substitute. See, Jesus didn't need to repent. We need to repent. And so Jesus perfectly obeys in our place, and he does it so that he, continue, so that he can continue to, to live the life that we should have lived, and then he could die the death that we're condemned to die. So he gets in our line, and he is our substitute. Jason Myers, who is a pastor in uh, Minnesota, said, that, said this in his commentary. He says that Jesus here in his baptism is identifying with the need of the people that he has come to save. In Christian baptism, going under the water means dying with Jesus and coming out of the water means rising to the newness of life with Jesus. And so here's the money line. 
He says, but before, Jesus, before we could identify with Jesus in our baptism, he, Jesus, had to identify with us and all that we had done as sinners in his baptism. So before we can identify with Jesus in our baptism, Jesus had to first had to come and identify with us in his baptism. And so it's that picture of substitution, Jesus in my place, Jesus literally in my place. And so he fulfills our righteousness through his humiliation, through his substitution, but also through affirmation. See, Jesus's baptism shows us who Jesus is and why Jesus came. Jesus is not just a revolutionary coming to make a political statement. Jesus is not just someone who fulfills all of your dreams. Jesus is not just an example of unselfish living. Jesus is the son of God. And this is affirmed at his baptism. And so there's a moment in which at Jesus's baptism that all of heaven and earth affirmed through what's going to take place that Jesus is who he says he is. And so as soon as Jesus comes out of the water, three things happen. The first thing that happens, the Bible says, is that the heavens opened. The heavens opened up. That word opened up or opening in the ESV is, is a Greek word that's only found twice in the book of Mark. And this Greek word is the word schizo. And so we get our word schizophrenic. To mean that the, the schizo means to be divided, to be torn open, to be ripped apart. And so Mark here is intentionally using this word, uh, this word to be ripped apart, to be ripped open. And I think that it's uh, to a degree fulfillment of to the fulfillment of Isaiah's prayer in Isaiah 64, verse one, in which Isaiah prayed 700 years before Jesus came. He says, oh, that you would rend or schizo or rip open the heavens and come down that the mountains may quake in your presence. See, every time that in the Old Testament that God opens the heavens, it meant that God was coming to reveal himself. And so when God here rips open the heavens, it meant that God was going to reveal himself to us. And this word ripped is specifically used so that we can understand that it is ripped apart and it can't be undone. It's, it's kind of like a cereal package. Have you ever uh, tried to go into your cabinet and get some cereal and you, you look in the box and you, you want to put some cereal in and you realize that the bag inside is completely ripped up and it's a mess? Or, or if you go to like Costco or Sam's and you get this big old thing of cheese that has the little Ziploc thing there and you get like enough cheese for a year and you put it in your fridge and your kid uh, wants to get a slice of cheese to put on their sandwich that they'll half eat. And, and as they do this, instead of using like the Ziploc part, they'll just rip the sucker open and then they stick it right back in the fridge and it ruins because <laughs> it's ripped apart. It can't be fixed. That's what's happening here. It's ripped apart. It's schizoed. The heavens are ripped open. The only other time this word, this word schizo is used in Mark's gospel is Mark chapter 15, verse 38. And that is when the curtain in the temple was torn in two. It was schizoed. Now, some of you are new to church. You don't really know what's going on there. Let me give you a little quick version of what was going on there. When Jesus died in the temple, there was a huge curtain. And that curtain separated the inner court from the Holy of Holies. So imagine there's a big, huge curtain here. This is the inner court where you all are. And then this is the Holy of Holies where God is. And so this curtain separated people from where God was. And, and as a kid growing up, I used to think it was like a sheet 
But no, this thing was 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide and 10 inches thick. And it was a symbol to the people that told them you cannot go to God because your sin has separated you from him. And so only one guy, the high priest, could go once a year on the day of atonement behind the Holy of Holies. And so in this moment, when Jesus died, the temple curtain was ripped from top to bottom. And so it's interesting that Mark begins with a rip of the heavens and he ends with a rip of the curtain. So when Jesus came, he took down the barrier. And when Jesus died, he took down the barrier. The barrier was ripped apart. First, the heavens are torn so that God could come to us. Second, the temple curtain was torn so that we can go to God. And so on this day at Jesus's baptism, God ripped open the door of heaven and all of heaven broke loose on earth. And so the heavens open. Second, the spirit descends like a dove. Now notice it says like a dove, not necessarily literally a dove. I know we just sang about a dove, but we're not sure if it actually was a dove, if it was like a dove, but we're wondering why is it that this language is used? And here's why I think it is. If you go to Genesis chapter one, verse two, when it speaks about the spirit of God, it says that at creation, the spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the Tangram that Mark probably would have read, it would have been translated this way. The spirit of God fluttered over the face of the deep like a dove. So there at creation, the Holy Spirit descends on creation like a dove. The next time you see the idea of a dove in Genesis is Genesis chapter eight, verse 10. After the world has been destroyed by the flood, God saves Noah and his family alive through the ark. And as soon as everything, as a matter of fact, did you know that the, the word Arkansas, the state Arkansas is in the Bible? Noah looked out of the Arkansas. <laughs> there you are. Anyway, so Noah comes out of the ark and sorry, it's late. Uh, and, and he releases a dove. Okay. And so what I believe is being said here at the baptism, especially in the form of a dove is that Jesus's baptism is pointing to a new creation. That's what Paul talks about. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation here. The Holy spirit descends on Jesus. And in this moment, his, he is being anointed for what God has for him. And Jesus is going to live the spirit empowered life. There are six references about the Holy Spirit of Mark's gospel and three are in the first 12 verses. And what Mark is trying to teach us and show us is that Jesus was led by and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And why was he empowered and, and led by the Holy Spirit to usher in a new day? You know, there's always excitement over new things. Excitement over a new year, excitement over a new coach. I know a lot of you Gator fans are excited about your new coaches. They'll probably be just as successful as the last ones. <laughs> new presidents, new car, new season. Here, the universe and billions of peoples of destinies are changed forever when the dove descends on Jesus at his baptism. It is the dawning of a new day forever. It's the coronation of King Jesus. Now, the Holy Spirit rested on Jesus and he moved in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that for some of us, there's some confusion. How did the Holy Spirit work in the Old Testament? How the Holy Spirit work in the New Testament? Well, I want to kind of give you a little bit of theology. I think this will help you. In the Old Testament, 
The Holy Spirit didn't live inside of people like he lives inside of people. Now, the Holy Spirit rushed upon people and he gave them power and the ability to do specific tasks. And so if you read scripture, you'll see that God filled and rushed, his spirit rushed upon the carpenters that built the tabernacle and the temple. God's spirit rushed upon the prophets to speak the word of God. He rushed upon the judges to save the nation of Israel. He rushed upon the kings to fill them with power to lead God's people. And so the best way that I know how to describe what this is like is from Super Mario Brothers. You ever played Super Mario Brothers? And so you have, you have little Mario out there and, uh, or if you ever played uh, Mario Kart, I like Mario. Anybody like Mario Kart? I like Mario Kart. The second service, I thought was going to get religion on that one. I mean, they started shoot, sh- shouting and hollering and it was, we were getting the Holy Spirit was happening. And, and so I, the best way I could explain it is when you have Mario and you know the little star. And so if you touch the, when Mario touches the star, he goes. So that's kind of like what the Holy Spirit was like in the Old Testament that the spirit rushed like you hitting the star and you could do whatever God wanted you to do in the power of God. And then when it was over, it was over. Well, the New Testament, if once you, are, once you trust Christ your Savior and surrender your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and he empowers you and he changes you from the inside out. And the, here's the cool thing. The same spirit that empowered Jesus to do his ministry, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. But here's where it's different. It's not like the star where you go, do, 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 do. It's not like that. It's kind of like when Mario, like in, in, in Mario Brothers, when you got little Mario and he, and he goes and he, he, he touches the mushroom and he grows up. That's kind of like what happens is that for us, the Holy Spirit grows us up and changes us from the inside out. So here, the Holy Spirit descends like a form of a dove and, and the heavens are ripped open. And then there's the voice from heaven. The Father speaks. It's an audible voice. Could you imagine if God ripped open the ceiling and said, boo, right now? You'd be running out of the door. This is what theologians call theophany. Here in this moment at his baptism, the whole family's there. The Trinity's there. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And this voice comes booming and says, this is my beloved son. This is the son that I love. This is the one that I'm in love with, the unconditional, unfailing love. This is the same words that Abraham used to describe his son, Isaac, the one that I love, my true, my true son, my beloved son. You know, when I was younger, uh, my mom used to tell me, she said, um, she said, son, you'll never really understand the love of God until you're a dad. And he used to get so mad at her. It's like, ah, man, I, but man, I had three kids and I understand God's love even more. And as much as I love my boys, as much as I love my daughter, God loves his, his son infinitely more than that. Infinitely more than that. And so in this moment, God, the father says, you are my beloved son. And then notice what he says, with whom I'm well pleased. One, one translator says that you can translate well pleases to whom I am fully delighted. Another translator says is the one to whom I am bursting at the seams with love for. Scholars say that here in this moment, Jesus is pronouncing or that God the Father is pronouncing a blessing over Jesus. Maybe you're familiar with the blessing 
But for centuries, Jewish fathers, before they would die, would gather their kids together and one by one speak a blessing over them. You see this in the book of, of Genesis, where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all do this over their sons. These, these words were words of affirmation. They were words of hope. They were words of faith. And the father would say to his son, this is what I see God is doing in your life. And this is what God wants for your life. And often these words would prove to be prophetic and would shape the worldview of that child. And they would inspire hope and faith in them. And in, in that day, in the Old Testament day, if you didn't receive a blessing from your father, it was devastating. That's what happened to Esau. Esau didn't receive the blessing of his father and it devastated his life. And let me just tell you something, men. How many of you are dads in the room? Say amen. amen. Well, you that are dads in this room, you have a responsibility to speak blessings and hope and faith into your kids. Your kids are longing to hear the words, I love you and I am for you from their fathers. They're longing to hear words of faith, words of affirmation. And here's what I've learned. Kids who do not experience the love of their fathers will go seek it in the wrong places. And so hear these words of the father. You are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Set the stage for the rest of the book of Mark. Here we see that Jesus is the beloved son. And God says, you are the beloved son with whom I'm bursting at the seams of love with. I have torn the heavens open for you. I have sent my spirit to equip and empower you. Now here's where we're about to get excited. What God did for Jesus at his baptism is what Jesus came to do for us. See, Jesus tore open heaven to come and be with us. He came to rescue us. He sent his Holy Spirit to empower and equip us. And he identifies with us so that when God sees us, he sees Jesus. See, Jesus came and he took my sin and he took my shame and my sorrow and he made them his very own. And I get his name, righteous, and he gets my name on the cross, sinner. And so that in Christ, when God the Father looks at you, if you are a Christian, he says, you are my beloved child with whom I'm well pleased. See, Jesus is the beloved son who identified with us. But secondly, he's the suffering servant who succeeded for us. You would think after this baptism event, when the heavens are torn open and the spirit descends like a dove and the voice of God rings out for all the world to hear, that immediately Jesus would be whisked into Jerusalem, go to the Temple Mount, preach the word of God, and the whole world would change in that moment. But instead, the spirit immediately drives him out. He propels Jesus to the wilderness. The wilderness is dark, it's dangerous, it's filled with wild animals, lions and tigers and bears, oh my. The wilderness is a place of testing and it's a place of trials. And what I want you to understand, dear Christian, is that often after great spiritual victories there come great spiritual trials. You don't stay on the mountain very long. Jesus was sent into the wilderness where he went on a 40-day supernatural fast, no food and no water, and then was tempted by the devil. Adrian Rogers calls this the devil after the dove. Often after your baptism, you'll experience great times of testing. Here we are introduced to the antagonist of the story, the enemy of God's people and the enemy of God, Satan himself. 
Matthew and Luke go into more details over Jesus's temptation. But as we read it, we see that Jesus is going to be tempted in three areas. He's going to be tempted in the area of pleasure, pride, and power. Those are the same temptations that we experience in our lives and are the root of all kinds of sin. But what, what Mark is trying to teach here is not necessarily that this is how you overcome Satan, but he's trying to teach us something about Jesus. And then what he's wanting to teach us is this, is that Jesus is the new and better Adam. See, the only other time that Satan speaks to humans like this in a temptation is Genesis chapter 3. Satan tempts Adam and Eve, and he tempts them in the same areas. He tempts Satan, and he tempts, or since he tempts Jesus, and he tempts us. He tempts us in the areas of pleasure, pride, and power. Just as Satan said to Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, you want it. Look at it. It's beautiful. Make you feel good. Go ahead and take a bite. Nobody will care. And so what Satan does to Adam and Eve is he offers all the pleasure without pain, but when the pleasure fades, all you have is pain. So Adam and Eve, they take the bait. They eat the fruit. They rebel against God. And the result is they're driven out of the wilderness. They're driven out into the wilderness, out of paradise. And I don't know about you, if you've ever read Genesis chapter 3, I read this text and I'm like, how could they have done that? You know, how could they have done that? How could, they, were, they had everything they ever wanted. They had paradise. They could, eat, they could eat all the ice cream they want and not gain a pound of weight. Everything was great. How could they have chose Satan's lies over God's love? And yet, if I look at my life and you look at your life, how many times do we look back and say, how could I have done that? How could I have listened to Satan's lies instead of, instead of experiencing God's love? And often, in many of us in this room, all of us in this room, have regrets over dumb decisions we've made. But here's what you have to understand. Jesus understands the pain of temptation, yet Jesus never sinned. And you say, well, he was God. He couldn't have sinned. So his temptation really wasn't as bad as my temptation. Well, think about it this way. I think Paul Tripp tells us best when he says this. He says, imagine a strong man bending an iron bar. The first bar is thin and weak, and he bends it to a 90-degree angle, and it breaks. He says, the second bar is much thicker and stronger, and even though the strong man exerts all of his strength, it bends all the way to the end, touches the other end, but it doesn't break. Paul Tripp says, which bar endured the most pressure? And the answer is the second, because it, it absorbed the full force of the man's strength, but it didn't break. So he goes on and he says this. He says, on earth, Jesus was like the second bar, because he never gave in, because he did not run away, because he never went where temptation would lead, but stood strong until the moment of temptation was over. And he endured the full power of temptation. Christ endured stress, pain, suffering, and sacrifice of an intensity that we will never face because he could lift the weight. He stood strong against sin for us. He endured everything that the world and the devil could throw at him. And he didn't fail. And so he's the better Adam. But not only does he teach us here that Jesus is the true and better Adam, but then the second thing he teaches us is that Jesus is the true and better Israel. You're like, why are you getting all this? Stay with me. Just as Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea and then wandered for 40 years, so Jesus passed through the waters of the Jordan and wandered 40 days. Israel went to the wilderness because of their disobedience. Jesus was driven to the wilderness because of his obedience. The people of Israel didn't trust God. They didn't obey God. And so what God did is he sent them on a 40-year NASCAR circuit in the wilderness. What you learn is that Israel put God to the test. Jesus passed the test. 
And so what's the point of this? What's the point of all of this? Well, it's not just to serve as an example. Jesus is not just our example. It's not just, I need to get baptized because Jesus was baptized. You should get baptized out of obedience and you should get baptized because Jesus was baptized, but that's not the main point here. And this isn't, the main point isn't, well, Jesus overcomes Satan through the word of God. And so I need to memorize scripture so I can fight God, fight for God and fight against Satan. And so I need to be like Jesus and stand strong. That's, that, that's great. You should. We, we have to say no to temptation. We have to make war against sin. We have to quote the word of God to the devil. But that's not the main point. Here's the main point, and I'm about to be done, so stay with me. The main point in both of these is this, is that Jesus has succeeded in every point where we have failed. Jesus did for us what we could not do. When Jesus came and he came as God's beloved son, he identified with us. And because, if, because of his identity, we now have a new identity and that identity is beloved child. We couldn't do that. We are, we're mess ups. And Jesus suffered temptation on our behalf when we would have failed the temptation. And the reason why Jesus came as the beloved son and the suffering servant is so that he ultimately could destroy the works of the devil and bring victory and triumph to God's people. So what he's trying to teach you here and what he's trying to teach you and me here is this. I don't overcome temptation by white knuckling it. I don't overcome temptation by looking to myself. I don't overcome temptation by having a big support group. I don't overcome temptation by throwing everything away. I overcome temptation by looking to the one who overcame. Because Jesus did for me what I can never do for him. And therefore he can sympathize with me in my struggle because he went through the same struggle, yet he did not succumb. He succeeded. And he has equipped me by his Holy Spirit in the struggle. And here's the good news. All of us this week messed up. All of us this week sinned. If you say, I didn't sin this week, you're a liar and now you're sinning in church. All of us are sinners. All of us need grace. And here's the good news. Jesus is our passing grade. One pastor put it best when he said this. He says, Jesus, because Jesus was strong for me, I am free to be weak in him. Because Jesus won for me, I'm free to lose. Because Jesus was someone, I'm free to be no one. Because Jesus succeeded for me, I'm free to fail without fearing that God will stop loving me. He says, if you think that God's primary goal for you is that you be an example of moral goodness rather than a trophy of grace, you'll never be honest about your deepest sins, struggles, or secrets. You'll always feel the pressure to pretend you're better than you truly are. We have to look to Jesus. And the whole purpose of this message, the whole purpose of this series is to see Jesus Christ who did not come to be served, but to serve. See, these two stories should cause us to marvel at the majesty and greatness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So many times we, we come in for sermons and we just wish, you know, Pastor, we just give me 10 helpful hints from Heloise so I can hack it on Monday. When the best thing that any pastor can do is to point you to Jesus. Because as you behold Jesus, your life will be different. 
As you behold Jesus, Jesus will change your heart. As you behold Jesus, you will want to live your life for him. As you behold Jesus, you can face whatever comes your way. See, because Jesus identified with us and because Jesus succeeded for us, when God looks at those who are his people, he says, you are my beloved child with whom I'm bursting at the seams of love with. Live that way. Live in that truth. Satan, on the other hand, you know what Satan says? Satan says, look at you. Look at how sorry you are. Look at what you've done. Look at what you've said. How can you call yours? You're, you are not a beloved child of God. You, you couldn't be after what you did, after what you looked at, after what you said, after what you thought. Here's the question. Which voice are you going to believe? You're going to believe the voice of the one who died for you? Are you going to live in the love of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit that was purchased by the obedience of the Son that suffered in your place? Or are you going to listen to the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil who want nothing but your destruction and the murder of your joy? Stop listening to the lies and put your eyes on Jesus. And when you put your eyes on him, things change. That's the point of this message. And so if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, Jesus came to you so you can go to God. He ripped open the doors of heaven and he tore into the curtain that stood between you and God so that he could come to you and you could go to him. Trust him today. If you've trusted him, but you've not taken that next step of baptism, if Jesus could be baptized by John the Baptist, then you're not that big of a hot shot. And if you're struggling in that fight of temptation, Get God's word in you, but keep your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never, ever pass away. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just move in this room, that you would hover over this room in this moment, that God, that you would empower and equip your people to go out and point everyone that we, they know to Jesus. Father, I pray that you would forgive us and help us to live in the freedom you've purchased for us through your victory on the cross and the empty tomb. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand and let's sing praises to our God. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church, go out and be the church, have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.